0: But you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 34. We come to the end of Deuteronomy. We'll start Joshua in the new year. Uh, Deuteronomy is that foundation for all of Israel's history. Uh, Remember, uh, when it comes to Deuteronomy, it's all about uh, the laws they had to keep concerning life in the land. And we see kind of that life beginning at Joshua going all the way to the end of Kings. So Deuteronomy is that foundation. It is the law by which the prophets come and indict uh, the the people for all their violations. And So Deuteronomy has been important for us. And certainly we come to an important moment in redemptive history when the old covenant mediator passes away. Uh, So it's not a long chapter. I'll I'll begin reading at verse 1 of Deuteronomy 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah which is across from Jericho, the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I've caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in, the valley, uh, in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. And The children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom for Moses had laid his hands on him so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and si- but since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face and all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh before all his servants and in all his land and by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel Amen. Well, we come to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy is very much structured like a covenant. It uh, really gives the fleshing out of the old covenant, that is, the laws concerning Israel and how they were to live in the land. It really is that covenant of works concerning life in the land. It was never meant to be a means of salvation, but it was always meant to be about external life in the land. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them, uh, to give them a seed and the land. And now we come to that fulfillment, we come to that temporal fulfillment, that uh, fulfillment concerning Israel, how now they're about to enter into that promised land. And so uh, God, through Moses, the mediator, Moses, the prophet, speaks concerning how the second generation specifically and all subsequent generations ought to live uh, uh, in the land in which God is giving to them. And so we've seen throughout the book, it's very much structured like a covenant. There's a preamble, there's a historical prologue stipulations blessings and curses and then the last section which we are in is concerning succession and future moses the mediator of the old covenant is going to die joshua is going to take over although he's not going to be the mediator but he's going to lead them and so uh moses uh uh, gave them this song that they were supposed to, to to remember as a witness against them he also bestowed blessing upon them which really was the poetic climax of the book, Moses's last words, and then we come in Deuteronomy 34 to his death. And so, in Deuteronomy 34, the Pentateuch and well, Deuteronomy and the Pentateuch as a whole is brought to a close with the death of Moses, the mediator. So it's all about his death. It's all about transition, a huge moment in Israel's history, going from Abraham all the way to the plains of Moab, as the people are now about to enter into the promised land. And we'll look at this death of Moses under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the death of Moses in verses 1 through 8. Then secondly, we'll see the uniqueness of Moses in verses 9 through 12. So the death of Moses, verses 1 through 8, then the uniqueness of Moses in verses 9 through 12. So let's first look at the death of Moses in verses 1 through 8. And notice, we see he gets to see the promised land in verses 1 through 4. He's the site of the promised land that God Shows him. And so he ascends Mount Nebo to the height of Pisgah. This is uh, part of a bookend with chapter 32, verses 48 through 52. And in between that is the blessing. So Moses uh, has given them the law. Moses has given them the warnings. Moses has given them that song of witness as a warning against them. And as he's making his way up, know that he's going to die throughout the book. He said, I'm going to die. I'm gonna die. We don't always get the reason for why he's gonna die until chapter 32. It was because he did not. He smacked the rock rather than speak to the rock. But also shows perhaps he dies with that older generation, that first generation that was fearful, and that second generation is going to enter in with Kimo, uh, Joshua and Caleb, who are part of that first, who then lead them into the promised land. But Moses still goes up. He's going to pass on that mountain. So he climbs. But went up verse one from the from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah. Pisgah was probably the ridge, the highest peak. So the mount is Nebo. The highest ridge is Pisgah. So he climbs the highest height of Mount Nebo, which is Pisgah, across from Jericho, where the people are about to enter into the promised land. And notice the Lord showed him all the lands. And so even though Moses is going to die before he enters into the land, God still is pleased to show him the scope of the promise. Even though Moses' ascent and death is sad, it's also meant to be a comfort for him before he dies. Even though he doesn't get to enter into the land, it perhaps is, in a lot of ways, as he looks at the land, it is basically saying, the land is here, the land they've longed to see, he finally sees it, and he's going to die a so-called happy man. It really is a vision of Canaan that is almost as good as entering into the land. A lot of the de- the death here really is a positive portrayal of Moses. It's not meant to be a sadness, but meant to be a positive thing when we consider the mediator of the old covenant. And so the Lord showed him the land. Similar language to Genesis twelve, when God appeared to Abraham and showed him the land that He called. He called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and said, go to the land that I will show to you. And he enters into the land and God shows him that land. Well, similar language here, God shows Moses the promised land. And it says that there in verse 1, And the Lord showed him all the land. And perhaps the image that we see here in verses 1 through 3, as he goes from place to place, is it's a circular motion. That is, he's facing west as he's standing on Pisgah. And he starts till as he looks towards the Mediterranean, he starts by with Gilead, which is near him. And then he starts to move up towards the north, then to the west, then to the south, and then back around. There's a circular motion that is going on with that there. He gets to see the whole of the land that God has promised. So the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead, as far as Dan. There's a reason we say from Dan to Beersheba. That's the two, the the farthest points apart from one another. Uh, In Israel, Dan was the most northern city. So he's looking up to Dan. And then he begins to see Naphtali in the land of Ephraim and Manasseh. Starts to go down to the land of Judah, as far as the Western Sea, into the Negev, or south. And then he comes to the plain of the Valley of Jericho, the palm trees as far as Zor. So it's a circular gaze of the land. He gets to see all of it before he passes. And notice specifically the sight that Yahweh gives in verse 4. We already see that God showed him all the land in verse 1. But notice at the end of verse 4, I'll come back to the promise in just a moment. It says, I have caused you to see it with your eyes. But you shall not cross over there. He gets to see it, but he's not going to fully enter in just yet. But nonetheless, it's God who caused him to see it. God who caused him to look at it. And perhaps some even highlight it was a supernatural sight that God gave him. A supernatural sight that he could see the fullness of the land before he entered in. And so he got to see it. But he got to see the fulfillment of that promise, which is at the beginning of verse 1. The Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. Really, Deuteronomy is the conclusion of the entire Pentateuch. And our mind really is drawn back all the way to Genesis 11 and 12 with the calling of Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and everything in between. All that happens in between. 400 years, Finally. The people are about to enter into the land. They have waited for such a long time. And often we read in the patriarchs how the patriarchs would go in and out of the land, but they didn't quite fully inherit it. Even with Abraham, it starts with his wife being barren. And so God's promises look bleak to the human eye. It doesn't look good, humanly speaking. His wife is not only barren, but they're old. And so what happens, God shows forth His promises, God shows forth. He is the one who is faithful. He gives Isaac. He gives Jacob. He brings them and saves them, even though there's famine. He brings them to Egypt. He calls them out of Egypt. He brings them to Sinai. He gives them the law. He uh, talks about how they ought to worship him. And then he they wander. Then they travel to Kadesh Barnea, about to enter the land. Their first generation gets scared. They wander, and finally, the second generation gets to enter in but even though the patriarchs went in and out because it was based upon god's promises the land really was as good as theirs now as far as the abrahamic covenant proper certainly we see genesis 12 15 and 17 certainly we see god appear to isaac in genesis 26 and then to jacob in 28 but perhaps a more lesser known chapter in abraham's history is in view here, and I think it is Genesis 13, because there's a similar thing that happens there where he looks, and what's interesting, in Genesis 13, this is the concern, there's too much, uh, too many, uh, too many uh, sheep, Uh, there's not enough uh, water, there's not enough land for all the Canaanites, for Abraham, and for Lot, this is when Lot chooses to go towards Sodom, Lot chooses to dwell by Zor, uh, but God, uh, Abraham, uh, he chooses not the promised land, uh, but God gives Abraham the promised land. And in thirteen fourteen, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from, from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For the land which you see I give you and your descendants forever. What's interesting is the language, certainly the language of giving is found in 12 and 15 and 17, but there's much more parallel with the, 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 the case that we see in 14 and in Deuteronomy 34, not to mention in Deuteronomy 3, when there's also when he's talking about how he's going to die, he uses similar language of northward, southward, eastward, and westward. So even though Abraham, yes, he was dwelling in the land, but he didn't have its fullness, God said to him, look, this is your land. Look, go walk in it. Look, it belongs to you. And so even though Moses will not enter into that land, God, it is, it is as good as fulfilled as he looks at that land. The patriarchs see the land, but they don't fully inherit it. Moses sees it, but that doesn't mean it is not his. And so, this is a, uh, you know, as far as one way to die, this is certainly a blessed way to do that. So, we go up to Pisgah and see the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. He finally sees the land. And so, after he sees it, he can die a happy man. In verses five through eight, we see the servant of the Lord who passes. And notice we see his death and burial in verses five and six. And so all this is very glowing concerning Moses. Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. He's called a man of God in Deuteronomy 33. He's called a servant here. And again, though he would not enter in because of his disobedience, he's still receiving a heavenly send-off in many ways. He really was a man of God. He was appointed by God, and he really was the mediator of the old covenant. There's going to be no other mediator that comes until the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to have other prophets. We're going to have other priests. We're going to have lots of kings. But there's going to be no other mediator who comes until the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses is a towering figure in the Old Covenant. Moses is a towering figure as that mediator of the Old Covenant. But what sets him apart above all from a lot of the Old Covenant saints is his meekness. He was one who was willing to serve. He was one who was willing to do what God had told him. He was one who was willing to deal with all the garbage concerning Israel. And so he's sent off in a blessed way. Moses, the servant of the Lord. He dies there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. His death is appointed by God. His death is promised, but nonetheless, it was God who has taken him. He's not caught up. Like Elijah as some people think but he really does die in the promised or before he enters into the promised land on uh in the plains of Moab so he dies and then notice his burial verse six and he buried him in the valley yeah in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth they but no one knows his grave to this day Notice he <laughs> who is he that buries him Well, a lot of the modern guys like to say perhaps it's Joshua who does that, or perhaps Israel as a whole. But some of the older boys like to highlight that it's God Himself who does it. And certainly the uh, editors of the New King James have a capital H there, and He buried Him. That is, again, because of Moses' stature, Moses is being a friend of God, as we'll see when we get to verse 10. It was God Himself who purposefully buried Him and put Him in a grave that nobody knows. And the nobody knows aspect perhaps affirms that it was Yahweh who did it uh, because that idea of no one knows his grave to this day was very important. Perhaps the reason that was important uh, is because uh, 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 God did not want the people to unduly venerate Moses. Perhaps a bad example would be uh, Saul and the witch of Entor. You know Saul needed some help. So what did he do? He went to try and call up the you know, the spirit of Samuel. I'm not going to talk about that right now because I don't know if I fully get that. I'm sure when we get uh, there in Samuel, we can talk about it then. Uh, but that's a bad example. And so, I mean, the people were prone to idolatry and the people would have been prone to worshiping Moses' bones as a relic, Moses' bones as God, rather than worshiping God himself. And so Moses, again, it was his unique relationship as the mediator of the Old Covenant, uh, his unique relationship with Yahweh. Certainly, Yahweh is the one who buries him, and only Yahweh knows where he is buried. And possibly, this is the background for that confusing verse in Jude 9, where in Jude, uh, in Jude 9, um, he talks about how Michael the archangel fights with the devil over the body of Moses and Perhaps what's going on there is that perhaps the devil wants to use Moses's body as an idol and bring it up. So that could be in view, and certainly, um, you know, he deals with false prophets there in Jude, contending for the faith. He talks about dreamers, these false teachers, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil. When disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said the Lord rebuke you. For those speak evil, whatever they do not know. Certainly, it's highlighting the uh, the, the, the wicked uh, words and the wicked ideas of those false prophets. But perhaps, again, uh, the burial of Moses could be in view. Again, I'm not going to unpack. I have no idea really what's going on in June 9, but that's possibly uh, what could, this could be the background for it uh, in Deuteronomy 34. Uh, so he's buried. His unknown burial is important even until this day. So he is not worshipped as an idol. God must be worshipped. So he's buried. He dies. He's buried. Then we see his stature in verses 7 and 8. His physical stature. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Moses' life is split apart into three 40-year periods. Uh, we have his first 40 years in Egypt, his next 40 years in Midian and the last 40 years as the mediator, uh, bringing the people as they wander in the wilderness and 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 leading them and guiding them and uh, speaking to them on behalf of God and on behalf of them to God. And uh, even though uh, he lives a long time, even though he's still spry into his old age, He still dies. He understands his life is not forever. And in fact, Psalm 90, which is written by Moses, highlights this very thing. You know, Moses was a wise man. We're going to talk about wisdom in just a moment. But what was it that taught him to be wise? Theology. He's going to live a long period of time, he's going to live longer than 80 years, even though it's, uh, but nonetheless, he understood that his days are numbered. He understood that God is from everlasting to everlasting, but his days are numbered. He understood that he's not God, but Yahweh is God. And he knew that even though he knew and trusted in the eternity of God and trusted in him in life. So, Lord, you've been our dwelling place before the mountains brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting, everlasting, you are God. A thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. And like a watch in the night, you carry them away like a flood. They are like sheep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and it withers. He goes on to talk about as well in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses did not live forever and understood throughout his life he was not going to live in that, uh, uh, live forever. He was going to pass. Now he looked ahead to a heavenly land, which I'll get to in just a minute. But he knew that he was going to pass. He knew his frailty and he knew where his strength came from. That's where his wisdom came from. Then also notice God gave him vigor to the end of his life. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. The patriarchs grow dim. Isaac and Jacob in Genesis 28 and 48. Moses does not until the Lord takes him. In the language there of his vigor is not diminished. It's highlighting the idea his skin did not get wrinkly. <laughs> That's what that means. Gil says he did not look withered and wrinkled, but plump and sleek, as if he was a young man in the prime of his days. That is, God gave him that vigor until the end of his days. His vigor was not diminished and his eyes did not grow dim. And so after he dies, after he's buried where nobody knows, the people weep for him 30 days, which is a custom. And then after the days are ended, they must continue. You know, they must enter in and start their conquest of the land. So Moses passes, the mediator of the old covenant passes. Uh, as he sees the promised land now we're gonna do some typology here i do think it's not wrong to draw some of this out especially when we see some themes uh, in god's word concerning the old covenant land and the promise of new covenant land the promised land that's temporal and the promised land that is eternal i don't think i'm out to lunch here because this is exactly what the writer to the hebrews does especially in Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me there. Old covenant Israel longed for Emmanuel's land. But what's interesting, they longed for that physical entering into the land of Canaan. What's interesting is the remnant, true believers, looked for something greater. They understood that the old covenant was a type of something greater. They didn't understand it in its fullness, but I think Hebrews 11, 39, and 40 is important. This is that hall of faith that we call uh the, that we sometimes call it uh but notice it's their faith in someone it's their faith in jesus it's their faith in looking to him and so by faith all these different ones do various things even in, before we get to 39 and 40 verse 13 is talking about the patriarchs what they looked ahead for they all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off were assured of them embrace them and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth the old covenant patriarchs for those who had such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland and truly if they'd called to mind that country from which they come out of they would have had opportunity to return but now they desire a better that is a heavenly country therefore god is not ashamed to be called their god for he has prepared a city for them they looked ahead they look to something greater. They look to something far more everlasting than even the old covenant could provide. You see, this uh, that's why reading the new and or the old and light the new is very important to see what the people were looking ahead towards. Then he goes on to talk about Abraham with Isaac, Isaac with Jacob, Jacob and his faith, Joseph and his faith, when they're dying and the blessing and all that they do there. And then we see in 23 how Moses by faith was hidden. By faith, he became uh, of age. By faith, uh, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. By faith, he kept the Passover. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea. By faith, it was by faith, by faith, by faith, throughout all of the Old Testament. And then this is key, as we consider the Old and the New together, verses 39 and 40. And these, so referring to everybody that came before have obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. They had the promise, but they didn't receive it in full. God having provided something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. How is one made perfect? How does one have eternal life? It is by virtue of the new covenant. It's by Christ and his finished and completed work. That is, salvation is both part the same in the old and the new, but based on the blessings of the new that were to come, that the old pointed towards. You see that there? That's clear. Something better for us that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That is, we with them by faith. And then he drives the point in 12.1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run the race with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of god we look to christ always we look to christ as we walk this world We have something far greater in Christ than anything we could ever imagine. And that's the point of the book, isn't it? They wanted to go back. They wanted the old covenant. They wanted bulls and goats. But the writer is saying Christ has come. He's given us a greater mediator, He's given us a greater sacrifice. And because of His sacrifice, He's given us a greater land. And what do you know? In 1218, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire and the blackness and darkness and tempest. He's talking about Sinai in Exodus 19. But we don't come to Sinai, dear brethren. We don't come to that terrifying mountain, but 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the New Covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We have this already, dear brethren, and perhaps the application we can draw is though we may not see that land, it is ours that we possess now because of Christ. And we have a hope and patience that that land shall come in its full. The church is a glimpse in foretaste. Every Sunday we gather, we enter into worlds unseen, but we long to see it in its fullness. Gill says, this view Moses had of the good land, had a land a little before his death, may be an emblem of the sight believers have by faith of the heavenly glory, and which sometimes is the clearest when near to death. This sight they have not in the plains of Moab, in the lowest state of nature, but in an exalted state of grace, upon and from off the rock of Christ, in the mountain of the church of God, the word and ordinances being often the means of it. It is a sight by faith, and is of the Lord, which gives, gives, strengthens, and increases, and sometimes grants more fully a little before death. Rather, we may not see it. But that land is ours and we have that rest in Christ because of what he has done for us. So that's the death of Moses, the mediator. Let's then look secondly at the uniqueness of Moses, the mediator in verses 9 through 12. And notice we see we've already seen um, the succession plan in Deuteronomy 31 that's founded upon Numbers 27. In Numbers 27 uh, he is, that's where they lay upon uh, the hands upon Joshua. But notice Joshua, the son of Nan, uh, son of man, the son of Nun, uh, is going to have the spirit of wisdom upon him. Wisdom is required when leading the people. Moses oozed it, uh, but Joshua has it as well. He is given wisdom and to discern what is the right path and certainly as well, he's going to need it as he enters into the land and he has to bash Canaanites and destroy Canaanites and deal with guys like Achan and their sin and the Gibeonites come along. So what do we do? He's going to need now that he fails in that, but nonetheless, he's going to need wisdom as a leader to enter in. And so he's been given that wisdom that comes from God. He's been given that spirit of wisdom. Certainly David's king who will come in Isaiah 11 will have the spirit of wisdom upon him. Uh, So he's given wisdom. We see his appointment, which was in Numbers 27, he is that successor, although he is not a new mediator. He's still the leader of the people. Uh, they lay hands upon him in that appointment, that bestowal, that image that uh, that that um, uh, they've been appointed and affirmed. That's why, you know, in the New Testament, we lay hands as well. It's been affirmed. You know, there's a process. There's a, a way in which uh, uh, we seek to determine and assess and hopefully find new elders and deacons, and then we lay hands upon them because God blesses those processes Uh, as we follow them so it's a it's a bestowal it's an appointment that was in numbers 27 and then notice the children he gets he receives allegiance so the children of israel heeded him and did as the lord commanded moses i mean that was kind of up in the air what are they going to do are they going to follow me they do they will we see this in joshua 1 they will be with him they will be for him the reubenites the gadites and even the half tribe will be with him as well They're not going to renege. Moses is gone. We'll just kind of do what we want. No, they still follow Joshua. And notice, too, what it says, and did as the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua is a positive start. They're not perfect, but when they enter into the land, things go pretty well for the most part. The problem is judges. And again, if they were going to retain the land, they had to have kept the law perfectly and perpetually. However, the people do not do that. In judges, we see when Joshua dies, things begin to disintegrate and degenerate very quickly. In judges two, seven through 10, we see, so the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for the servant uh, done for Israel. But specifically, verse 10. When all the generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them and they provoked the Lord to anger so they degenerate very quickly they worship the baals rather than yahweh and they do what uh, they there was no king in israel they do what was right in their own eyes so joshua takes or joshua takes over but then notice there's a final sort of reminder of the uniqueness of moses in verses 10 through 12 notice there's no one like him But not since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses is the prophet par excellence. We saw this in Deuteronomy 18 as they were looking for a prophet. You need to be one like unto Moses, not like the false prophets like in Deuteronomy 13, but ones who are like unto Moses, ones who are meek, ones who spoke the word of God. And one, uh, one whose words actually did come to pass. And Israel is meant to look for that prophet. And Moses really was unique compared to all the prophets with that language whom the Lord knew face to face. And what this means is perhaps there was a tranquility of Moses in his relationship with Yahweh versus other prophets who bowed down in fear. Not saying Moses wasn't reverent, but you see the language in Exodus thirty-three, eleven, speaking about him and who he is as he uh, interacts with Yahweh. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Or later on in Numbers 12, after Miriam and Aaron rebel against Moses and they get their bee in a bonnet because, wow, have we not spoken as well? They wanted a um, more authority than God had given them. He heard their grumbling. Moses was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Aaron, come out to the tent of meeting. And then verse six, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, but not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face-to-face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Gil says, and face-to-face, as he had done, in a free, friendly, and familiar manner, as one friend speaks to another without injecting any fear or dread and consternation of mind, which was sometimes the case of the prophet's, but without a middle person, a mediator. Moses was the mediator. Moses really could converse in a, with God in a way that nobody else could. But one thing that's interesting with verse 10 in Deuteronomy 34, notice, the Lord knew. Whose initiative is it? The Lord knew Moses face to face. The God of heaven and earth entered into covenant with Israel. And he had this unique, special relationship with Moses, whom he knew face to face. And so that we see Moses function as a blessed mediator of the Old Covenant, especially in Exodus 32 through 34, for that whole golden calf scenario. Certainly, Exodus 33 is sandwiched in between there. But Moses really was unique. There's not arisen in Israel a prophet like him. Isaiah's is great. Jeremiah is wonderful. They're all, but no one is like Moses. No one is like unto him. No one knew God like he did, face to face. And then notice in verses eleven and twelve, there's this reminder, kind of again, bringing together the whole of Israel's history, all the way from the Exodus, all the way uh, to their time where they have been brought to the plains of Moab. In all. The signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land. God used him to bring him to Pharaoh to say, Let my people go. God showed and demonstrated his might and his power over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt. He demonstrated his might and his power. That's the purpose of the plagues to show that Yahweh is God. And not Ra. God is Lord overall. And God used Moses, the mediator, to do that very thing. All the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in all the land of Egypt. So, what Israel or so what Egypt saw, but also notice verse 12. And by all that mighty power and all the great terror which uh, Moses performed in the sight of Israel, that's probably referring to Sinai. So, from Exodus to Sinai, God redeemed them. God brought them out of the land of Egypt by signs and wonders, and God appeared to them and gave them the law at Sinai. All that thundering and lightning from Exodus 19, all the people being afraid, Moses, please, you go talk to Yahweh. We can't. It's too too too, too scary for us. Uh, they, had to, uh, they, they needed a media to do it on their behalf. And so that's probably what it is referring to here, the giving of the law at Sinai. And perhaps at the end here, it's not just meant to be um, a reminder of uh, Moses's uniqueness, although that is in view. But perhaps it is also to stress and to impress upon the reader the importance of keeping the law. The last thing that is said is a reminder of Sinai. Remember Yahweh, remember all the thunderings, remember all the lightnings, remember all that happened before the law was given. Remember that as you enter into the land. Remember who your God is. Remember uh, who Moses was as that mediator. It's driving the point home of Yahweh's holiness as they now have to keep the law to retain the land. McConville says the death of Moses is therefore an essential theme of the book. The challenge to Israel is to live in the land without him, but with statutes and laws that he has given. Which are able to lead to life in the land. So Moses was that special mediator, but hopefully the people as they entered into the land would remember that, would understand that, would keep the laws, but also remember the holiness of Yahweh as they seek to do so. Now we know they fail miserably, right? Yeah, we read Judges. There's still problems in Joshua. I know Joshua's a little better than most, but We'll see it too when we get to the end of Judges, how quickly it degenerates with a certain name mentioned there. How quickly they fall and become, become, begin to resemble Sodom and Gomorrah rather than Israel. That's why we have the blessings of the new covenant, a mediator of a better covenant, the, the land purchased for us because of what Christ has done for us. And thankfully, even though our mediator died, he only was dead for three days and then he was raised again, right? And because of his finished work, because of his dying and being buried and descending into hell and rising again, when I say descending into hell, I just mean his, he actually died. He died. and just, I know that's disputed. I take the, the the traditional view that it's referring to his death. He really died in his dying. And he really did, uh, was, was resurrected. He really did ascend. He really is seated at the right hand of God. And thankfully, because of that, we also, we have rest, but it's because of him that we have life. It's because the mediator that was raised that we are the new covenant people. And thankfully, he still speaks to us. And I think there are several things we can see in connection with Moses uh, based upon his death and based upon what Christ has done. Well, Jesus really is the prophet like unto Moses, isn't he? This is quoted, sorry, Deuteronomy 18 is quoted explicitly in Acts chapter 3. That was the one the people were longing for. Jesus, the one who speaks to his people. In Acts chapter 13, Peter is saying, after he heals the lame man, saying, this is the prophet promised. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. He speaks about that. He quotes Deuteronomy 18, certainly Deuteronomy 34 can be in view as well. Yes, verse 24, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. He, Jesus, is that prophet par excellence. I probably said that in a weird way, but that's okay, in a French way. Uh, But Jesus really is that one that Moses looked forward to. But this is also seen at the transfiguration. You can turn with me to Mark 9. At the transfiguration, where Christ comes, or so where they see his heavenly glory, Jesus speaks with two men, Elijah and Moses. Don't miss Malachi 4. In Malachi 4, there's the, he speaks about the law of Moses and the future Elijah who would come. And we know that future Elijah who would come is John the Baptist. And so we go from the first prophet of the Old Covenant to the last prophet of the Old Covenant, which is John the Baptist, who is the Elijah. And so what we see here in Mark chapter 9 and the other transfiguration accounts, is that the P that Jesus is speaking with the, the, the first prophet and the last prophet before Christ comes? And he is going to he has come, he has arrived, and they see him in his glory. And notice what God says in the midst of the cloud in verse 7: This is my beloved son, hear him. Christ is the one who speaks. Christ is the one who declares the word of God as the word of God. Christ is the one who preaches the kingdom of God and brings in the kingdom of God. And he is the one that we hear. And thankfully, as the word goes forth each and every Sunday, we hear him. And as the catechisms say, why do we need a prophet? Because we're ignorant. We need someone to teach us and to show forth the redemptive work of God in and the finished work of christ and moses is a type of christ and moses is present at many moments in redemptive history so jesus is that prophet who speaks but also jesus is the mediator who builds a better house but not only who builds the better house but is not uh, he is the son of the house because he's not a servant this is in hebrews 3 In Hebrews 3, comparing again the greatness of Christ against Moses. And we see in verse 2, talking about the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all of his house. So Christ is appointed, Moses was appointed. For this one has been count worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. He's talking about how Christ is the one who builds it, yet it is God who builds it. And then verse five, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of the things which would be spoken of afterward. He was a servant. He was not the son. And then, but Christ is the son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence. Christ, again, the point is he is that mediator of a better covenant who builds a greater house as the son of that house. He's not just a servant, although he is a servant. He is the son, and he is God, and he is the one who builds the house. Perhaps there's some overtones with the Davidic covenant as well, but certainly Numbers 12 is in view there. Moses built a house as a servant, Christ builds the house as the son, and as God, and if we hold fast to the son, we shall rejoice, Uh, uh, we can be confident, uh, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm until the end, and then he goes on to talk about the wilderness wanderings, and then talk about the rest that we strive to enter into. Craigie says, whereas Moses was a servant in the household of God, the coming prophet was a son, Jesus Christ, who brought with him the liberation of a new exodus and established the relationship of the new covenant. And brethren, if we have a more excellent mediator, the point of Hebrews is why would anyone want to go back to the old? Christ has come. Christ has arrived. Christ has finished his work, and is seated right now at the right hand of God the Father. And we, as God's people, come to that heavenly mountain through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll close with a quote from Henry. He says, but as far as the other prophets came short of him, our Lord Jesus went beyond him. His doctrine was more excellent. His miracles were more illustrious. And his communion with his father was more intimate, for he had lain in his bosom from eternity. And by him God does now in these last days speak to us. Moses was faithful as a servant, but Christ as a son. The history of Moses leaves him buried in the plains of Moab and concludes with the period of his government. But the history of our Savior leaves him sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high. We are assured that of the increase of his government and peace... There shall be no end. We have the mediator of a better covenant, which Moses pointed towards. Christ is the greater Moses. Well, let us pray. O oh, Lord our God, we are thankful for your unfolding plan of redemption, both in the old and in the new. Thank you, O oh God, uh, that the old covenant points forward uh, to Christ. Uh, that there are, there are types in the old covenant point to Christ. Even uh, Moses, who is a type of Christ, who is the mediator of a better covenant. And thank you, O oh God, that we are part of that new covenant that is founded on better promises. That we do approach to a heavenly uh, kingdom, a heavenly spiritual mountain, namely Mount Zion, through Christ our Lord. And even though we do not see it yet by uh, sight, we do believe in it and see it by faith. And so thank you, O God, even for the type of the the old covenant land that points to a new covenant land. Thank you, O God, that we possess this. We hope for it. We are patient for its coming. And thank you, O God, that even as we endure hardship and sadness and sorrow, and even having to endure death, O God, we know that our patience uh, in this is for our benefit, for something far greater awaits. Uh, even after all the sorrow that we endure, so thank you, O God, for all that you do. Thank you, O God, for the old covenant and for what it teaches us and for what it signifies. Thank you for Deuteronomy and uh, your covenant with the old covenant people. Uh, thank you, O God, that we can read about your history with them, and even more may we see Christ as we do so. So thank you for guiding us through this book, thank you for feeding us through this book that you continue to teach us, O God, as we uh, continue to Uh, unpack your redemptive work. So be with us tonight. We pray by your spirit in the name of Christ. Amen.